Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very quiet Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Chaloner and today I'm joined by Ali Patterson. Now Ali is a director at Advertainment Media, a company which provides end-to-end event production services. Um, Ali, welcome. It's great to have you with us on the programme today. Well, thanks very much for, for having having me on the programme. And I said, Westminster probably is pretty quiet right now. Um, virtually deserted, I have to say. Um, there are a few buses um, uh, going down the uh, the street every now and again, but that's pretty much all the activity that you'll see. And um, that, of course, is a direct consequence of what's going on at the moment with the whole fallout of COVID-19 and those social isolation measures. Um, so tell me, Ali, in your line of work, how has it been as a leader trying to navigate a business through that over the last couple of weeks? Oh, it's quite... Um we do uh, our, our main brand is called uh, fintech finance so we kind of cover a lot of events in the technology and and, uh, and finance space and for us this this really really started at the beginning of february mm. um we attend a lot of events and i've got a big list of all the events as, as they were getting cancelled but the big one that had an, an initial impact on us was uh, was mobile world congress uh, down in barcelona mm. um which Fair play to some of the organizations out there who were dealing with it. Um, the, the guys at Huawei, they actually sent their team out two weeks beforehand to Barcelona so that they could be quarantined so they'd be allowed into the conference. Mm. Um, but when that conference got cancelled, the, the knock-on effect for us was like, wow, this is, this is actually getting, getting quite serious. Um, and uh, this, this is back in Feb when there really wasn't much... Um, there wasn't really much government support and it was like, okay, we have to adapt. We have to be kind of as quick as possible. So for us, we've put to one side all of the travel that we do, all of the meeting people to, to film bits of them, uh, all of the event coverage. And we're now, we've had to, like everybody else, we've had to focus on doing stuff online, but doing stuff, uh, doing stuff differently and dealing with the whole working from home aspect. And I, I've got to say, I think, I think my team have, have taken to it quite well. I think there's, I think once this is over, a lot of people are still going to be working from home. Um, but it, it definitely has been quite, quite an eye opener into what you actually need and um, and what you can think. You know what? I, I don't need to spend money on that. I don't need to worry about that. Absolutely. Um, I think it's been a learning curve uh, for uh, business as a whole. Uh, but also, quite interestingly, we've it's raised the importance of being proactive as well as reactive, hasn't mm. it? Because um, there's been some proactivity we've seen um, in China, the likes of Xi Jinping, for example, being quite quick in putting certain measures in place, putting certain areas on lockdown. And of course, here in the UK and also in the United States, it's taken a lot longer for those measures to come into place. Um, if we sort of take those two different approaches away from politics and away from times of crisis, as it were, um, which approach in an everyday context is leader do you generally prefer yourself Ali would you rather be proactive get on top of things as soon as possible or would you tend to sort of let things play out see how matters develop and then take action from there oh god I, I don't want to be that guy I've, I've got to be middle of the road though you've you got to take a bit of both um, I think you, you don't know what's going to happen so you do almost want to want to react to it but you want to be flexible enough that you, that you can um, as an example um, we make a lot of telephone calls around the world, and I, I spent quite a considerable time a few years ago like building up this this uh, trigger CRM system. So that the concept behind it is that my sales guys can make a call, even if they're in the middle of Mongolia with a landline phone and a 
a Windows 10 connected uh, connection, they can still make a telephone call um, just by logging on remotely. And I know a few other organizations, uh, believe it or not, are struggling with things like the phone systems. So I'm quite glad that I set that up a few years ago. I wasn't setting it up intending it to uh, to be used in the, in this capacity, but we're, we're using it left, right, and center because it, it, it was something that was just the simplest thing to do at the time. Um, so I would say be proactive in becoming flexible uh, as opposed to, uh, and and be reactive in what's happening in terms in terms of every day i think the expression is um react react slowly uh, react fast but move slowly or the other way around i, I forget i forget I, I think that's um, a, a very good answer because it's it's very much about striking a balance between the two isn't it because you can be proactive you can have measures in place for certain situations but you can't always be entirely aware of what's going to come so in some ways you do have to be flexible and have that ability to adapt when certain um, things come when certain measures are put in place especially um, at the moment and um, based upon like your own experience from the last few weeks and getting to navigate this um, do you have any advice that you would give to other the business leaders who are facing difficulties at the moment yeah and it's not um it's not the nicest advice um which is a lot of people i've spoken to in similar situations are now in a position where they're basically waiting for money from the government um i'm i'm, I'm going to be applying for obviously money from from, from from like the corona job retention scheme um but the attitude I'm trying to take is I'm not going to get anything from the, any kind of relief from the government. Um, so the kind of the advice I would have is act as if you're not going to get relief from the public sector because you may not. It may be slow. It may be in different forms. Uh, things that sound very nice on a uh, on, on a stage um, may not actually translate well. Um, the big one that I was on a WhatsApp chat with a, a few uh, event event companies uh, at, during the initial announcement that there's going to be ten thousand uh, pounds grants awarded to uh, to SMEs, and um, we were all saying, "Oh, fantastic! Excellent! That means you know we can use that money to pay our staff." But it wasn't that at all. It was uh, relief on business rates. So I, I've kind of learned don't don't take what is said literally at first because and, and and just assume you're going to get you're going to get nothing and if it comes in it's going to be a bonus uh, that that's kind of the advice i would take is act as if you're not you're not going to get any money from the government absolutely i, th- I think as a business leader it is good as you say to be prepared for the uh, the worst case scenario and be prepared to uh, navigate things uh, very much alone but i think it's also important on the other hand to remember that as a business leader you're not necessarily a one-man or one-woman operation, are you? It's very much also about the team that's around you, especially now with everybody working from home and the importance of effective communication and cohesion at a distance. Yeah, and um, we, we've actually, in fact, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at my whole team now. Uh, we've been using Google Hangouts from the absolute get-go. In fact, um, before we were forced to kind of sort of vacate offices, um, we did it where we had, I had a few people working from home, um, but we had a Google Hangouts running the entire time in the office, even if it's someone sat next to you. Uh, and now we, so it was a bit more of a, a bit less of a shock moving to the working from home. And now we've got this Google Hangouts running the entire time. So I can literally look up and say, hey, Chloe, um, can you do this? Or Tom, you have another Apple or, or whatever it may be. But it's, it's, it's nice having that 
it's almost like having the uh, uh, our team usually have a lot of downtime and chat in the kitchen. That's where they have their coffee breaks. We've basically got a few Google chats that are a bit like that. Uh, and it, it does make a difference being able to see each other as well. Um, it, it gives that, yeah, it gives that team mentality. So I've been leaning very heavily onto onto Google Hangouts and Zoom. Absolutely, because I think at this point in time, it's very much leading from the top, isn't it? That's so important. I think team members, I mean, they are given a great deal of independence at the moment, but it's good for them to be aware that the leader at the top is there, is leading by example as well. It is. The other, um, the other thing that is in the news quite a bit at the moment um, is I, I'm, I'm, I'm not getting paid this month. Um, and a lot of uh, leaders, I know Monzo Bank, for example, and, a lot, and a, there's a lot of pressure on some of the other banks um, ha- that all the CEOs have said, look, no, we're, we're, I'm not taking a salary this year or this month or, or whatever. Um, it's kind of, I, I did it. And I then heard uh, one of my staff members say, well, I bet, I bet you know, he's still getting paid. It's important to make sure that you actually communicate that with your staff. Um, but it's not just about doing it for the sake, it's also about, it's also a morale booster. Yes, absolutely. And um, I think in any context, um, in the everyday running of a business, I think creating that positive atmosphere, that positive culture, it's a huge responsibility on the leader, isn't it? Because with that positive um, atmosphere, if you will, that is the way of getting the best out of the people around you, isn't it? It's it's, it's of huge importance. 100%. Culture is king. Uh, I'm a big, uh, big fan of the, of the guys at 11FS, and I've, I've got some of their stickers that say cult, "Culture is King" all, all over my laptop. Um, and we, we're quite, um, we are quite a close knit company, and we and we do things like whenever we go to an event, say in Amsterdam, rather than fly or one at a time, we would hire a minibus and transport all the stuff. And there's a really good, solid sort of team mentality behind that. A bit, a bit like. Uh, when you're at school and you do like a, a, a football team to go to another game and you'll hop on the minibus, it, it's a bit like that. And it's it's quite tricky to try and capture that that magic um, virtually. But there's a few things that, that we've done um, that we've done for that. And it, it's silly things. Like, like one of my team members, uh, we've spotted that he um, he makes a point of eating an apple a day. And uh, his attitude is, well, this, this is how I'm not going to get corona, apple a day. So there's a bit of a competition as soon as he as he gets out the apple, and he's completely unaware of this. Um, everybody's screenshotting uh, him eating his apple of the day. So there's a, there's a few silly things like that that we do that I think brings people together. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's it is it is it is quite tricky. But uh, you have to translate what you do usually face to face into this virtual environment. Absolutely. And it throws up um, a whole range of uh, challenges in itself. Um, we've talked about um, the culture that you've essentially instilled at the uh, the business alley, but what would you say are some of the influences behind that culture that you've looked to manifest? Yeah, you know, um, I always say, actually, this isn't my, my expression. Um, I, I can't remember who it was pointed out that the books that you read today are going to influence the person that you're going to be in, uh, in five years time. Um, and, I, found, I was thinking, what books were I reading then? And uh, about five or so years ago, I was weirdly obsessed with um, with Disney and Pixar, and I read seven or eight different um, autobiographies and uh, um, recounts uh, and, and mem- memoirs of what happened during Pixar being acquired by Disney. 
but from people. There's a fantastic one that's actually by the um, I forget who it is. So you have to give it a goose um, uh, from the CFO at uh, at Pixel at the time doing the acquisition, and it's incredible having all of these different accounts of exactly the same thing, and they almost kind of cross together a bit like a big old uh, Marvel universe. But the culture that was installed there was very much look. We just got to get this done and get it done to the best of our ability. Everybody pitch in and let's try and think of a different way of of, of doing things. Just because it's been always been done that way doesn't mean that's how we need to do it. And I think that has kind of had a bit of an influence on the way that we um, on the way that we do that we do things. There's a slight sentiment as well that if it's if it's a good idea, if it's creative, if it's if it's even if it's a bit out there and a bit. Uh, a, a bit wacky if it makes sense there's absolutely no reason why you, why you shouldn't be doing it absolutely and it's a really interesting response that um as well and it's interesting to see how um those even things um like that um have had an influence um on business as well um i am conscious um here ali of uh, running out of time but before we do go about wrapping things up um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months are going to hold for yourself, for the company as well, and what you really hope to achieve in that time as a collective, especially beyond COVID-19. Well, if you had asked me this uh, uh, two months ago, we, we do a, uh, a thing called the payments race, which is where we had a group of people racing from one city to another catches um they can only use one type of payment so one person can only use gold one person can only use cash one person can only use bitcoin um it's proven quite quite entertaining we had a series of these planned for this year um going all all uh, all continents apart from antarctica probably going to be quite tricky to do that now with various border restrictions uh you can't just have fly someone to singapore and get them to come back Mm. Back, back to the UK, um, with maybe only using like one or two flights. It's uh, it's also pretty irresponsible to do that. So we've had to put a bit of a pin in in that. Um, I think for us, our goal is to, in the initial few months, is to survive. Uh, but our team seems to have pivoted quite well. Um, I think rather than travelling internationally as much, we're going to be hiring people in all corners of the, of, of the world and start to kind of build a base there so i think there'll be a lot a lot of international expansion but that'll be by necessity rather than by choice but that could often be a, a positive thing um but the other thing that i think we're going to be focused on doing is we do a lot of work in the fintech space because financial services has been disrupted and a half in the last five years and, and, and maintains to be so um, I think we're going to start to move as well into doing uh, videos and, um, and and event coverage and magazines, but within within the food technology space because I think agriculture has been uh, hasn't been disrupted uh, in the last four thousand plus years. Well, not truly disrupted. Uh, and similarly, I think we'll do the same in in law and uh, and legal because my as a, as an industry. Um, that is that is absolutely right for digitization and disruption. Really interesting um, response there, and I think it will be fantastic to see how these hopes are borne out over the uh, the next few months as well. I mean, especially looking to expand into uh, different areas and really seize the opportunities that this time of uncertainty is uh, presenting. Um, I have to say, Ali, it's been um, really insightful and also a pleasure having you on the uh, the programme today. And I think looking back at this retrospectively, it would be fantastic to have you back on in a few months just to see exactly how those hopes have uh, panned out. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me for the benefit of the uh, listeners.
Absolutely no no problem. Um, last time I did one of these was a um, was a video one, and um, my I, I I really want to get the recording of it because my four year old came in and I've got a big curtain behind me with um, <laughs> our, our branding on it. He um, he accidentally pulled down the curtain. The whole thing fell down, and the camera looked out of my office across the landing at my wife getting dressed. Oh dear. Oh, so dear. Uh, yeah, absolutely would would love to. Absolutely. Um, We now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, I hope you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... Um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to completely different world almost I'd been I was a Middlesex player I was mm. captain of Middlesex all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later I've scored a test century which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly I started thinking wow hold on I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails so it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think... In those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could 
say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that. But perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f- i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club you Quite. know and i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it's it just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived Hold as a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. 
No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the capture trap bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and without all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. 
And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job um okay so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the world cup on Holyam soil in yes. 2019 uh i was firstly i was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in world cups and this includes my time as captain we just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt 
no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers Um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary numbers yeah i mean in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those. That would be yeah, so the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... Uh, yeah. A very inclusive, if you're thinking about, think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing 
prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely no they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket um, but more importantly um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day one game a day over a six-week period broadcasters will pay money for that and therefore what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills if you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gotta be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, 
its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.